Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Christian Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with Dr. Katie Butler, who's authored a terrific new book entitled Between Life and Death, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. Katie's a former trauma surgeon, uh, former faculty member at Harvard Medical School. Uh, she's, uh, she's taken a break from clinical practice to homeschool her children at present. Uh, but Katie, I am so delighted that you've found, you found the time to put a lot, of, a lot of the experience that you gained in your years as a trauma surgeon put them down on paper for, for the average person to read. This, the book is so insightful and so helpful. Uh, just very grateful to you for uh, taking the energy that it took, I know, to put this together. Oh, Scott, thank you so much. That's a lot coming from you, too, given your background with uh, working on ethics committees before. I just pray that it helps people through some what are really some harrowing situations. Let me start with this. Um, you you know you've seen a lot in your years as a mm-hmm. uh, trauma surgeon, uh, ER doctor, uh, and I mean you've you've spent a lot of time with a lot of patients and a lot of families and have seen a lot of natural death and a lot of unnatural death too. Um, yeah. How, how you, you talk in the book that the the, the end of life experience for patients and families has changed like light years in the last, mm-hmm. you know, 50 to 75 years. How could you just sort of briefly summarize how that how the end of life experience has changed for patients and families say in the last century? Yeah, of course. If you look back over the centuries, death really the practicalities of death mirrored its spiritual realities, meaning that uh, death happens at home with family in the environment and surrounded by the relics of our our lives that helped build who we are. And it was something that was part of the community. Pastors would be involved. You know, so it really was something that mirrored its um, spiritual importance. And if you look at statistics and poll Americans, year after year, we find that 75 to 80% of us still uphold this idea of death as a spiritual event, and we all say that we want to die at home. However, we have seen a dramatic shift whereby the reality is that very few of us do. Um, The data most recently says that anywhere from 25 to 40% of people actually die at home, while most of us actually spend our last days in institutions, in acute care hospitals or rehabilitation centers or ICUs. And what this discrepancy has done is that we don't have any concept of what actually happened in death because it's become so highly medicalized and we don't talk about its realities that when we're then confronted with it, it can pitch us into some horrible dilemmas where we are on machines and are not able to speak given our illness or given the interventions that are imposed on us. And then when we are unable to vouch for ourselves, our loved ones are thrust into the position of having to make decisions on our behalf. And very often they are very ill-equipped to do so. And studies have shown that the impact upon them is very real. They suffer anguish not only over 
the impending uh, loss of a loved one, but then can have anxiety and depression and complicated grief and even post-traumatic stress disorder afterwards, just from the agony of having to make decisions about life and death for someone they love without any clear guidance in such an unfamiliar environment. Well, one of the things I so appreciate about what you've written here is, this, is I've, I view your book as just a major reality check on what patients and families actually go through at, at the end of life. Uh, in fact, for, you know, for example, you call the you call the ICU a hotbed of suffering, uh, yeah. and you mentioned that you know stays in the ICU both for patients and families produce some of the same symptoms that post traumatic stress disorder does, similar to what soldiers mm-hmm. suffer from. I think I think yeah. that's break that's breaking news to to most mm-hmm. people. Who mm-hmm. you know? Who do not practice medicine or have regular contact with hospitals? Why? Why do? You, why don't doctors give more realism about what end of life aggressive treatment will do? Just in terms of the general overall suffering that it tends to inflict. Yeah, I think there are a number of reasons. One of them is that we didn't have any idea the long term effects of ICU care until fairly recently. Our outcomes and their survival rates in the ICU were pretty low until about the last 20 years. And it's been with the implementation of quality control measures, like um, efforts to reduce hospital-acquired infections, uh, protocols to try to help us better resuscitate patients with severe infections. These kinds of protocols have really helped to get people out of the ICU and prolong survival. And so it's really only been over the past 15 years or so, that we've started to acquire longer-term data for patients who've been in the ICU. And it wasn't until 2010 that we actually coined the term post-intensive care syndrome uh, because people after being in the ICU can suffer long-term psychiatric effects. In addition to if we use paralytics, medications that paralyze you when you're on a ventilator, they can actually suffer from long-term weakness and require long-term physical therapy or neuropathy, so they have chronic pain. And we just didn't know about this until the past 15 years or so. Um, The other things that I would say is that medicine has become so highly subspecialized that the ones who are really seeing the effects on people in the intensive care unit are the ones who are there ministering to them and caring for them moment to moment. The um, practice of medicine has become so highly compartmentalized that people that most people are, the doctors that most people are interacting with on a regular basis in their offices or to go for a cardiology consultation aren't seeing the realities of what's actually happening in the ICU and how um, devastating it can be for people. And then I would say the third thing is that, in general, medicine has a culture of what Atul Gawande coins as a culture of cure. There's very little discussion about suffering and dying in medical training. And I can recall that the first time that I encountered death and had to declare someone deceased, I was a resident and no one had discussed with me as a medical student what to do. I didn't know what to expect because the focus is so heavily honed in on what's the next thing you can do. And so in terms of looking at the broader picture of when are we actually helping and when are we returning people home versus when are we inflicting suffering without benefit and potentially committing people to real trauma, uh, those things, it's just kind of outside of the mind frame of a lot of physicians. Do you think there's any other deeper reasons why maybe in medical training that that's not talked about? Is it avoiding it? Is it kind of the 
deeper implications theologically that they'd rather not go there? Or is it really just like you said, we're just so focused on saving and then kind of move on? Oh, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> I would say that uh, there's a wonderful book that I could recommend. If, I don't know if you've read it called Hostility to Hospitality um, by a husband and wife team, Tracy and Michael Balboni. Well, he's a theologian. She's a radiation oncologist. And they actually look at the divide that's present right now in spirituality versus medicine. How uh, they, they did a study of four different Boston hospitals, and they did a cross-sectional survey of 75 terminally ill cancer patients. And what they found was that 80% of the patients voiced that spirituality and religion were important to their illness experience and their um, forecast of their end of life and that experience and that process. But the, the numbers of physicians who said that it was important to them or that they felt comfortable actually providing spiritual care was minuscule. Mm. And patients reported that only 1% of physicians offered chaplaincy in their care, which to me is just astonishing, you know, but there is a real clear divide in terms of um, spiritual mindedness among uh, medical caregivers and patients that certainly is contributing in some effect. But I do, um, to your point, Sean, in terms of denial, I think there is a big component of denial there as well, where physicians, because of our training, we're taught to try to cure disease. It feels like failure to say that you can do no more. Mm. And there's not a general acceptance of, di- of death being something that's inevitable. It's something to fight against. And that trickles down into the experiences people have then at the end of life, where we're not willing to say, you know what, this is not going to help. Um, and it really requires, I think, a, a mind shift, um, which is coming around, I think. People are being more vocal in terms of Atul Gawande's book, and there was recently a memoir out, um, by a palliative care specialist out in California, saying that we really need to change the conversation when people are ailing and struggling with terminal illness to focus instead on what are their values and what do they really need most at the end of life um, when our cures run out. Katie, you uh, make, a, I think, a very helpful distinction in your book between treatments that cure and treatments that support uh, a patient. Uh, and you distinguish between technology that preserves life and that which prolongs death. I found it particularly helpful that in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the treatments that simply prolong death, you make the point that they, they always increase suffering. Um, in fact, I, I, I would probably make the case that they always, it almost always involves a, a, a net increase in the level of suffering that a patient experiences. Mm-hmm. But as you know, at the end of life, that distinction between technology that preserves life and that which prolongs death can get a little there's a there's some gray in that and it becomes a little bit fuzzy how do you help, mm-hmm. how do you help families decide sort of which is which which yeah, which, which things cure which support in 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 helping them make treatment decisions right i think the key thing to ask is whether or not the underlying illness the underlying process that's threatening a loved one's life is reversible or can be improved or can be recoverable sometimes think about ventilators and dialysis and all these things that we do in the intensive care unit, which is under the umbrella term of life support, we think about it as treatment. And it's, it's not. It, we can put a, someone on a ventilator indefinitely, but what determines whether or not they're going to get better and go home and come off the ventilator depends on what is the underlying process driving the failure of their lungs. So to give you an example, if someone comes in 
with uh, a pneumonia with a bacteria that's very common, that's easily treated, and they're otherwise quite healthy, and they require a ventilator, that ventilator is most likely to be temporary because we can reverse the underlying process with antibiotics. And they're expected to be on the ventilator a few days, they can come off of it, and they can return to their lives. It's a very different scenario when you have someone who comes in terminally ill with metastatic lung cancer and end-stage emphysema who comes in with a fungal pneumonia that's much harder to treat. That, in that scenario, when they come in with failing lungs, that ventilator is most likely to be a permanent fixture and the underlying illness is likely not recoverable. So it's, it requires talking with doctors about what is it that's driving the illness in this situation and is it something that can be reversed or is it something that can be improved and then the question comes if it can be improved what kind of life will it look like for the loved one afterwards because oftentimes just as you say Scott it's not so black and white of getting completely better or sliding into death as much as improvement with this new disability and that really gets into questions of suffering for what would a loved one say if he or she could speak? And this is why these conversations are so critical to have before a life-threatening event happens, to try to discern what would be too much suffering and what would somebody be willing to endure to achieve what's most important in life and to continue to walk with the Lord and what would just be unbearable. That's particularly helpful because the way this is done in the bioethics literature is you talk about the futility of treatments. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... You know, mo- most most treatments are are not futile because if I mean if if they were physiologically futile, we just wouldn't prescribe them because because they simply don't work. Futility right. doesn't really capture what we what we need to capture. It's about is is the disease reversible or or can it be improved? But then at what cost? And I think right, exactly. I, I think we've been we've been very reluctant to to ask that question at what cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that seems to me to be particularly important in this. Uh, how do you how Absolutely. do you get families to consider the the you know w- what they actually might be authorizing for medicine to do to their loved ones mm-hmm. when they're not at the bedside? They don't you know they don't experience any of this. They don't you know they they authorize these treatments and then go to the waiting room or go out for lunch or go home and come mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know maybe maybe not come back for a few days. Uh, yeah. So how how do we help get how do we help families see wh- what exactly are the costs that they are imposing on their loved ones? Mm-hmm. I think in many cases for for their own individual benefit, not so much for their for their loved ones' benefit. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, in terms of the individual benefit, I think it's just so hard because the people whom we're asking to make decisions are struggling with their own turmoil meaning scared, worried to lose a loved one, grieving. There might be all sorts of emotional history there that we're not aware of, and then we have to have them make these decisions. Um, You know, I think it really has to focus on what would the loved one say or do. Uh, And this is why I think it's so critical that we have these conversations ahead of time and try to formulate advanced directives. But the narrative should always be what would my loved one want, not what I would want, not what I would want for him or her, but as image bearers of God, part of loving, you know, those and who are entrusted to our care is to say, okay, how can I be your voice when you can no longer speak? And so 
as physicians, the, the um, onus is on us to really explain what is the likely outcome. And sometimes we don't know, and sometimes it's appropriate to continue on with everything. But when it's very clear that someone's debilitated and has an end-stage disease, we as physicians need to pause and say, wait a minute, is this the right thing to do? Or are we going to be inflicting needless suffering? And we should always be having conversations with loved ones about what would your loved one want? Have they had these conversations? And if they haven't, to try to tease out what are their values? What is it that throughout the trajectory of their life they've pursued and at what cost? And what have they voiced as being unbearable in the past? You know, Katie, speaking of uh, individuals' values, you cite statistics that seem to suggest religious people actually opt for more aggressive treatments at the end of life, yet they claim to believe in eternal life. How do you make sense of this seeming tension? Yeah, yeah. So there have actually been several studies looking at this, so it's been duplicated several times. The data actually looking to try to elicit from people, their rationale is less robust. Um, that has suggested that people who are, use religious coping to try to get through an illness um, will often be praying for a miracle and insisting, I'm going to continue, I'm going to do everything because God's going to heal me. I can tell you from personal experience that what I see much more often than Christians is that there is a tendency to cleave very tightly to the principle that mortal life is sacred, but ignore the overall arc of the Bible in terms of what God teaches us about who He is, who we are in relationship to Him, and what He's done for us in Christ. You know, and life absolutely is sacred and is a gift, and looking back to the Ten Commandments, it's to be preserved. Uh, however, if we cleave to that and ignore the fact that death also comes to everyone, and that God has authority over our life and death, and that as Christians we have a hope that supersedes our death thanks to what Christ has done for us, it's almost as if that, that clinging to that principle becomes an idol. And I, I see that very frequently where people will, will misconstrue the fact that we protect the unborn and we are... Uh, that we oppose appropriately physician-assisted suicide uh, as a misinterpretation that we then need to do everything at all costs. So what would you say to a family who wants to cling to the possibility of the miraculous until the end Mm. and yet realize Mm -hmm. that oftentimes God doesn't perform miracles? Do you just live in that tension? Yeah, so first of all, I would say that those who are really clinging to that idea um, and are stalwartly saying we need to do everything are usually those who are really hurting and are very scared. And so I found that you have to proceed very delicately. And sometimes you might not have a frank discussion about it until you've developed a relationship with that family member, because otherwise they will just shut down and think that you're fighting them. And that's not the case. I think if you developed a rapport where they trust you and you, they realize that you really do want um, to care for their loved one as they care for them, uh, and you've developed that trust, then talking about the fact that, yes, God performs miracles, but by definition, a miracle is outside of science, and He doesn't need our medical trappings to perform it. You know, Jesus raised Lazarus with a command— He performed miraculous healings all throughout his ministry with soil and his own saliva. I mean, there is, we don't require this kind of technology. He doesn't need our help to perform a miracle. 
And the other thing, I, I find that reflecting upon Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is very helpful, because here's one who has all the power of the Father at his disposal, if he chooses, who is praying, Lord, please take this cup from me. Don't, will, don't ordain that I suffer. Uh, but in this next breath says, but not my will, but your will. And I think that's a very helpful mind frame. Pray for a miracle. Yes, God does enable miracles, but we can't bend his will to ours. And even if we think that our loved one's miraculous healing is the only possible ultimate good, it may not be in, to God's glory, or it may not be uh, the ultimate good that he can see outside of space and time. And so pray, yes, but ultimately we need to uh, honor God's will. You said that a lot better than I would say it to a family. I've been, I've often been tempted to say to families, if we want to hope for a miracle and let's go for broke and turn off everything. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But but you your your response I think is a bit more gracious than mine. Although I have I have been tempted to ask families who I know are believing families to say, mm. do do you really believe what you say you believe about resurrection and eternity? Uh, yeah. Because from the way they're holding on to earthly life, and I get that, I think your point's right that they often do that because of the pain that they they're feeling themselves. Exactly. Um, yeah. But we we had a phrase in the hospital that we would that we would sort of communicate with each each other who were who were caring for different patients when we we would say we would say we are now treating the family mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we yep. would when yep. we when we were imposing treatments for the family's benefit and I tried to get across to family members that that's almost always unethical to impose right. burdens on a loved one not for their benefit but for the benefit of the family members who understandably I think have great difficulty letting go because their loved one is going to be in a different and better place but we're not the ones right, who, the ones right. who are left behind are not in a, in a better right. place so and there's often a lot of uh, turmoil that we just don't see in terms of guilt you know whatever it is they feel like they're going to be giving up on their loved one and they can't do that or you know there's often a lot under the surface that's tangled in there and it's not really just about what is the best thing for the one who's lying in the bed. Katie, you've mentioned several times how important it is for families to have these conversations with their loved ones about what they would and would not want at the end of life. Mm-hmm. Yet, I, you know, we found, uh, with you know, I tell this to my seminary students, and they, those, those are extraordinary difficult, difficult discussions to, to have. And I have, mm-hmm. I have some seminary students who are from some, some uh, distinct cultures where they just they rule that it's just out of I would never have that con- I could never have that conversation with my dad or with my grandfather. So how mm-hmm. how do you help families actually sit down and have these conversations that are productive and meaningful and actually give guidance to the people mm-hmm. who are going to be making decisions for them? Oh my goodness! So one of my motivations in the book was to try to break that silence, <laughs> to try to help people understand that. As much as discussions of death can stop conversation at a dinner table faster than anything, it's not something that we can defer until the need arises uh, because the stakes are just too high. It's not only suffering on ourselves in terms of enduring treatments that might be abhorrent, abhorrent to us, but it's also inflicting those who are then required to speak for us with incredible, um, I mean, it's just a huge burden. Um, what I would say in terms of trying to coax people to have these discussions, recruit help, 
if possible from a physician. You know, so if you're a, a child and you're saying, I want to have these discussions with my, my parent, but I can't, you can always reach out to the primary care doctor of your parents and ask them to try to start broaching it. Maybe that difference of a professional opening the discussion will help. Or if there's a pastor that's trusted and then include you in the discussion as it unfolds, that would be one way to try to have someone partner with you to try to help uh, open up that dialogue. So they don't, Another they don't, tact, they, yeah. they don't get to, def- they don't get to defer that conversation to the parent or to the, to the pastor or the physician, but they're, right. they're no, included no, no. I, in that then. Themselves. Exactly, and that's, that's that's really how it should be. If if the next of kin is the one who's going to be making decisions, you know, I would I, it should be that they're involved in that discussion. Um, and then the the next thing I would say is if you're just trying to open that dialogue with a parent, part of it might be actually not to run straight to the scary questions. What would you be okay with? What would you not? But to try to open the discussion about values. What is it that over the course of life they have required to uh, grow in fellowship with the Lord. What has been the most hard for them in life that they would never want to revisit? Start it that way, and then maybe refer to someone that you know, that you both know, who's been in the hospital, and talk about it in that context, about values and suffering, and then get down to the specifics. Mm-hmm. But make it so that it's a dialogue that's less intimidating. You're not making it obvious that you're talking about death, but really, you're trying to get to the heart of what is it that matters to him or her? Because you can then extrapolate those values to help you uh, when you're in a situation of making decisions for a loved one. Yeah, was, I thought I thought it was it was really helpful your statement. I think sort of early on in the book when you said most of us will be unable to articulate our wishes when the time comes. Uh, yeah, that's a yeah. major reality check. And uh, something I would hope would be an, an incentive, if, if, that's, if that's true, that I will not be able to articulate my wishes when the time comes, then I'm counting on my loved ones to guess at it if I don't have those conversations with them. Yeah, exactly. About 70 to 75% of people across age groups cannot speak for themselves at the end of life and require someone to speak on their behalf. And that's from illness itself causing confusion or incapacitation. It's from the actual measures that we implement. So when you go on a mechanical ventilator, you need a tube that goes through your vocal cords, so you literally cannot speak. You require sedation to be able to tolerate the tube, and so then that eliminates nonverbal communication. Uh, And oftentimes in severe illness, we suffer from delirium, so we're actually detached from reality. And all of these things mean that when there are decisions to be made that are crucial. How far do we go? What do we do? You can't speak and vouch for yourself. And then by necessity, the responsibility falls to those you love. And if we don't equip those we love ahead of time with a sense for what we would accept and what would be intolerable, it just puts them through tremendous anguish. You have a really interesting section where you give advice for people to talk to doctors at the end of a mm-hmm. loved one's life. And that's in some ways counterintuitive because we feel like when our loved ones are hurting, we're the ones who are vulnerable and they need to know how to talk to us. But you kind of flip the narrative a little bit. What advice do you have for families talking to doctors? Yeah, I mean, this comes from having been at the, in the conference table in the ICU so many times where I've had discussions with families. And just knowing that it's very intimidating and you can have 
questions banging around your head and not know what to do, but not know what you can ask. And as I mentioned, you know, very few physicians will offer chaplaincy. You know, so what I would say first and foremost is ask for spiritual support in the hospital. You're entitled to it. Every hospital offers it. They can help you navigate these things from a spiritual standpoint. Do you understand how the Bible directs you? And then in terms of um, trying to tease out for uh, a loved one, when is something reversible or not, just feel empowered to ask questions. Really try to understand what is the disease process that's threatening his or her life? Uh, What are the treatments that are being given? And what is their likelihood for recovery and for ushering someone back home? Um, And what what are the downsides? You know, and some physicians will volunteer this information. Others will not because they're so caught up in the care itself. And so really feel at liberty to ask questions often and frequently so that you have an understanding of what lies ahead. That's really helpful because I know most of the people I talk to in the hospital setting, they're intimidated by talking to doctors and they get so little little time uh, Mm -hmm. that it's just, it's really challenging to make those productive. One one final question for you, Katie. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember really vividly when my my father in law le- left the hospital for the last time. He had had mm-hmm. he had cancer surgery, and I'm I'm wheeling him out of the hospital. And he had been in there for he had complications. Predictably, he was in his late 80s. He was there for probably three weeks. Delirium set in, like you describe. Uh, it was mm-hmm. a it was a terrible experience, and he. He whispered in my ear as I'm wheeling him out. He said, don't ever bring me here again. Mm-hmm. And I think what he meant by that, though he couldn't articulate it quite like that, is, I, is I'm going to, you know, regardless of what medicine says or can or can't do, I'm going to live out the rest of my days as from the hand of the Lord with gratitude, mm-hmm. and I'm sort of entrusting myself back to him. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you? I, but we, we we were not at a place yet where medicine says we have no more options. But he was. Yeah. But he was done with medicine. Right. Right. What, what do you say to the family who sees that suffering and wants to stop? But yeah. it's but it's before the point. I mean, everybody's most people are fine stopping when medicine says we have no more options. Right. Uh, right. But before that point, I think is where a lot of the a lot of the suffering gets inflicted. With, uh, I would say, marginal if 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 li- if little benefit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know, I would say to the issue of suffering. You know, part of the Christian walk is to have compassion and be merciful to the suffering. And he very clearly declared that what he endured was too much. You know, and we never would have mercy in the sense of actively administering a medication to end someone's life. So that's physician-assisted suicide. That's not what I'm talking about. But we're not mandated. The Bible doesn't compel us to chase after treatments that are going to cause suffering that's unbearable. You know, and and so it's perfectly within someone's um, power, in, in terms of biblically speaking, to decline further treatments if they say this is too much. Um, what I would say for families who are concerned about suffering being too much is it's really important to tease out what their perception is. And I say this just with a caution because a layperson standing within a doorway of an ICU patient's room can look at that loved one and really not know if they're on the verge of recovery or if they're dying. They will look the same. They can have the same kind of trappings in terms of a ventilator and a 
big tree with IV pumps and a dialysis machine, and you need a physician to try to decipher for you, decode for you whether or not your loved one is on the verge of recovery or is declining. And so whenever a family brings that question up, I think it's really important to get a clear sense from them about how they think things are going and what's the trajectory. And then the next question is to your point, which is to say, okay, even if we do have more options, what would the loved one say? Would If they, he or she could speak, would they be amenable to this, knowing that there's potential for improvement? But would this be too much based on what he's voiced in the past? And it's a really critical question because I've seen two cases that still haunt me. And I wrote about one in the book um, where it was clear that the discussion had not been thorough, where a family member said, my, my mom would never want a ventilator. And it really was not apparent that the mother would decline a ventilator that was to be temporary or short term. And she had something that was definitely reversible, would have required a ventilator for only a couple of days. And instead, the team didn't intervene because the daughter said, nope, she never would have wanted it. You know, and it, these things take time to tease apart. Okay. If you don't want to be on a ventilator, is it really so black and white that it's never, or is it that you don't want to be ventilator dependent? You know, so anytime someone brings up that they think it's too much suffering, even if there are further options, it's just important that we tease apart what are really the thoughts at play. And if it really is that they know that this is too much, and even if there's hope for cure, this would be too much for them to bear, then it's okay and it's compassionate if we're honoring their wishes and their dignity as image bearers to say, okay, we don't have to pursue aggressive measures. That's, that's really helpful. That's really good advice. Uh, Katie, mm-hmm. I want to commend you for your book and commend it to our listeners. The book's entitled Between Life and Death, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. Katie, you've done such a good job with it. It is so well-grounded biblically, but it is also incredibly practical. Um, and you, and it's, you, you take the, the medical data and put it in layman's terms in really helpful ways that people can grasp hold of quickly and easily. These are, these are really important questions. We've said on, on our show before that unless, you, unless you're completely alienated from your family and everybody who you mm-hmm. care about, you will walk down the, these, this end-of-life road with someone that you care about. And you will all, we will all walk down it ourselves. So you've done the body of Christ, I think, a, a wonderful service with this book. Um, and I, you know, I, w- I wish you well. I hope our featuring it uh, gets it into a lot of people's hands because it is really good stuff. Uh, and I hi- well, highly commend you for it. Thank you so much. And I just pray that it helps grant some people some peace in what are just some very, very difficult scenarios. And perhaps can help us remember that ultimately our hope is not in these contraptions that can so scare us and cause suffering, but are in Christ who has overcome all of it. Amen. Well said. (laughs) This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Katie Butler, and find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.